Matthew. And so during the Advent season, we preached through the first two chapters of Matthew, looking at Jesus' humble yet glorious birth and, and his early childhood. And, and now uh, Advent and Christmas are in the rearview mirror. Uh, finally, finally, mercifully, our tree left the house yesterday. Um, and, uh, and so uh, I can come before you and say we are past Christmas uh, and we are in Matthew chapter 3. And in Matthew chapter 3, we're going to be introduced to uh, a man named John the Baptist. Uh, as Nate said, some of these stories are familiar to you, but we're going to look at them in some pretty uh, uh, intense detail, so hopefully uh, it, is, it is profitable. Um, but we're going to look at John's ministry and how his ministry uh, began uh, before Jesus' ministry. Um, and John is a man who figures prominently uh, throughout the Gospels. Um, and, and, and we're going to see him quite a bit as we preach uh, through Matthew. Um, and so we need to know a little bit about who he is and how God intended to use him to prepare and point people towards Jesus. So we're going to rewind just a bit before we get into Matthew 3. Um, and if you've been part of our church for a while, you know that in the fall, we preached through the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And we did so purposely leading into Matthew because that was God's kind of last words to his people before uh, 400 years of silence. And, and in Malachi, uh, in chapter 3, um, God says that, that before he comes back to judge, before he comes back to save, he's going to send a messenger. And in Malachi 3, chapter 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger. He'll prepare the way for me. And the last words of Malachi in, in chapter 4, uh, verse 5 and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So God is saying that, yes, I'm coming to judge. Yes, the awesome day of the Lord is coming. But before he comes, he's going to send someone who's going to prepare the way, someone who's going to warn someone who's going to encourage, someone who's going to announce. And so he's going to send a prophet like Elijah to call people to repentance and to announce the arrival of the king and lay the groundwork for his kingdom. And that prophet that is spoken about is John the Baptist. And so uh, John um, was called by God and used by God. And uh, when we get into Matthew 3, he just kind of bursts onto the scene as an adult, kind of doing his ministry. But as much is known about John's birth and about his, his early life as almost anyone else uh, in the Bible. And so uh, we'll take a, a minute there to just look at that. And, and John was born to, um, to a man uh, named Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth. They were um, a couple that was advanced in years. It's a really polite way of saying they're really, really old, too old to have kids. Um, and uh, Zachariah was just kind of a mid-level pastor from a small town. And he comes in to the temple to do uh, some, some service for the Lord, and God speaks to him. And an angel uh, goes in and tells Zachariah that you're going to have a son. Your wife is going to get pregnant. Um, you're going to name him John, which means the Lord is gracious awesome name. If we have more kids, we're not having more kids. Never mind. If we have more kids, I name him John. But, um, but he goes in and he tells him in Luke 1, verse 15, he says, he will be great before the Lord. 
And he must not drink wine or strong drink. He's a good Baptist. Um, and uh, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And he'll make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So we see these links in the chain of God's word going from Malachi into the New Testament through Luke, preparing, saying John is going to be significant. Oh, yeah, Elizabeth as well uh, just happens to be um, the relative of a young virgin um, who is betrothed to a uh, carpenter named Joseph who has an awkward situation that she needs to kind of get out of town for a while. She's pregnant mysteriously, right? We covered that um, during Christmas time. And, and Mary comes into town. Elizabeth is pregnant, miraculously. Um, Mary is pregnant divinely by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and as they meet, and when Mary starts to speak, it's recorded that the preborn baby John does back. Elizabeth's womb when he hears the voice of Mary because he's so excited he's back from the past. And so Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of her Lord. And then we see that, that John is born a few months before Jesus. And his dad, as he is dedicating him, says that he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he, and he prophesies. And we see later in Luke 1 that it says, and you child, speaking about John, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. He says that's what John's going to do. And Luke 1 ends with kind of John's growing up. It says, the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So while Jesus was raised in a town, the comfort of his family. We see that John, pretty early on, leaves home, and he's alone in the wilderness, just him and God. And so we come to Matthew chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, please turn it there. And we get to meet John the Baptist in Matthew 3. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to rise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. 
he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's word. So we see in this section, in this this, uh, piece of scripture, that John has some, some pretty serious prophet credentials. He's well qualified to do what God's called him to. And so we, we saw that Old Testament prophets like Malachi talked about him. His dad got visited by an angel. That's relatively significant, right? Um, his dad prophesies about who he is. And, and, and if it isn't clear how significant John is in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's explicit in saying that John is the prophet that Isaiah talked about in verse 40, sorry, chapter 40, verse 3. And if you read in Mark and you read in Luke, they are unanimous that that John is that prophet. And even his clothing is significant. Those aren't throwaway verses. It says that that he's wearing camel. And and yeah, okay, I read a commentary that was kind of funny. It said, well, Camel back then wasn't as expensive as it is now. And I haven't bought camel clothes for a long time, so I didn't realize that there was something great and cool. But um, regardless, it was the cheapest form of garment you could have then. And so, yeah, it shows his humility. But, but more than that, if you go back and, and you see and you look at Elijah in uh, Kings, uh, 2 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 8, it says, They answered him, He wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist, and they said, this is Elijah. So he's wearing a uniform. He's he's repping Elijah's uniform as this is what a prophet wears. It's like if he came in with a big top hat and a beard and said, I'm coming in the spirit of Abraham Lincoln to preach salvation to the slaves. Like, it's clear why he's doing this. So it's not an accident. He, he eats bugs, which is, you know, kind of fun, I guess. But, but he eats wild honey. And, and, and they make the distinction, like, there was no great beekeepers giving him this honey. Like, John was stung up. Okay? So you got this guy in these dirty clothes. He's out in the wilderness. Um, he eats a lot of sugar, so his teeth are probably a little jacked up. Uh, he's eating bugs. And, um, and he lived humbly. But, but, but more than all those things, Jesus seemed to have a pretty high opinion of John, too. We see later in Matthew that uh, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Think about that for a second. No one. No quarterback, no president, no general, nothing. No one greater than John the Baptist. He goes on later and says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is the one to come. So with John, God speaking through prophets, God speaking through his law ends. Because God's going to speak through Jesus from here on out. John's that last prophet. So I think it's significant that Jesus never praises anyone as much as he praises John the Baptist. So as important as John is, he is only significant because of who comes after him. See, John's a herald. He is, he's like a trumpeter giving this blast that the king is about to appear. And so John's entire function, John's purpose, John's call, John's life, everything about 
who he was and what he was doing was to announce the king is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he wants people to be clear that that the kingdom of heaven isn't some realm or some place that you go to. The kingdom of heaven is where Jesus and God is the king who reigns. And so it's not about where you're going, but it's about where the king is. It's defined by Jesus' rule, working over everything. And so the kingdom is where the king is. He says, Jesus the king is coming to his people, and John is to make the way clear for the king. So as we get started into this, I want you to ask yourself, in your heart, in your life, what about your actions? What about your heart attitudes? What about who you are is a little rough, is a little little off. That if all of a sudden the king of the universe stepped into your life, stepped into your home, stepped into your heart, what wouldn't look right? What needs to be prepared? What needs to be changed? What needs to be smoothed over. This is an important message that John has. Get ready. And so he's got this important message. And and when you have an important message, an important announcement, you need to grab a big audience. And so, so John doesn't really use any church growth strategies, right? It says that, that he doesn't set up shop in the temple in Jerusalem. He doesn't set out signs on all the important streets. I I don't even think he had an app. Not sure, but there's no like online Facebook page for John's ministry that he's putting stuff out. It says he's out in the wilderness, away from from the city, away from the seat of power, away from influence. He's in the margins, completely away from where you'd expect God's messenger uh, to be. He's in the wilderness, it says. And if you know anything about the Old Testament prophets, God traditionally met them and spoke with them in the wilderness because there in the wilderness you're lonely. There in the wilderness you're removed from the noise and the activity of the city. You don't have a crowd around you to look around and say, as people we're pretty significant. No, it's just you, God's creation, and the creator God. And all of a sudden you get really small really quick. And that's where God has a chance to speak. Even in preparing for this sermon, I, I wanted to get away from some of the distractions, away from some of the noise. It's like you can't write a, you can't always just write a sermon like this in Starbucks with like 50 people walking around you. It says, no. So I, I just took an hour, a couple hours actually on one day and just went for a hike. Found a place close to home and, and I just walked and it was, I was hoping God would say something. And I was convicted because I realized, wow, I, I just don't listen enough to what he has to say. It's not just quiet anymore. And so it was a, it was a profitable time, but, but we need these times, these places to not be distracted. To step back from the noise, step back from our smartphones, step back from our busy schedule. To be alone in a place where God can come in and tell you what he needs to tell you. Because his word will be received. So John, not strategic in how he out in the wilderness, it says. And, but despite that, John gathers a large and diverse crowd. Um, there's, there's a lot of common people, kind of the, the 99%, if you will, just the, the average Joes in Judea who, um, uh, who are, are poor. They are 
marginalized. They are oppressed by the Roman government. We see as well, if you look in Luke's account, that there are tax collectors coming to be baptized. We've talked about that a little bit before. There are even Roman soldiers saying, what do I need to do? What do I need to, to repent of? And so it says that, that people came from Jerusalem, the, the big city, the big hub of, of commerce and culture there, all of Judea, the region around the Jordan River, where, where they were coming out of the cities, and they were coming into the wilderness to hear John, and, and many of them were ready to listen, and many were ready to obey. That's significant. See, their God, our God, was silent for 400 years. And during that time, everything got worse and worse and worse to the point that, that even when they say, hey, I think God's talking, it's inconvenient to get there. You might have to get up early. There's not even a Starbucks on the way to the wilderness. Like, we need to go out and hear what God has to say. So they left their comfort zones. They left everything that would be easy or, 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 or comfortable for them and stepped out and said, I need to hear what God has to say. And what's interesting, it says that, that he was preaching. It wasn't saying, hey, come out to a seminar and let's just have a dialogue about my ideas about who God is. He's not saying, let's, let's talk about some philosophies for life. Let's, let's uh, you know, talk about, um, you know, just something really high and mighty in the ether that, that's just some good ideas. No, it uses the word kiruso for preaching, which means announcement. John's got news. Something big is about to happen, he says, and y'all better get ready. And so the people respond to this announcement by confessing their sin. They realize, wait, there's something wrong with us too. Yes, this world is broken, but we are not worthy if the king's going to show up. We've got to be prepared. And, and, and they recognize that in the face of a perfect and holy God, they're not ready. Not ready for that arrival. And so, so they go through this process, it says, of baptism. And this is a little different than, than uh, baptism as we know it. Nate will talk a little bit about that uh, next week. But um, for John to call mostly a Jewish audience to baptism was absolutely scandalous. See, at, at, at that time, there were ceremonial washings for priests before they could go into the temple. There was uh, cleansings that could happen for folks as they were about to enter, uh, you know, better areas of, of the temple. Um, but the only ones required to be baptized were the pagan Gentiles who were saying, I, I want to worship the God of the Bible. I want to worship the God of Israel. And, and, and so the Jewish people said, no, you need to wash off your Gentileness before you can come be part of our so the baptism of that day was you clean yourself up. In fact, it was even done alone, meaning that you had to wash yourself. Now, there might be some witnesses, but, but you had to come into this pool. You had to clean yourself because nobody else could touch you because you were unclean and messy until you cleaned yourself. Then you could come in and be part of our good, clean, righteous people. And that's, that's not what John does. See, John is now telling Jews, even the religious Jews, that they need to be baptized because they too were unclean and not ready for the king's arrival. And so this baptism that was happening here was a symbolic act of repentance and purification. It was a death to a whole way of life opposed to God. And, and it says John, it's clear that John was administering uh, the baptisms 
He's not just watching as a witness. See, John's saying that no. Jewish baptism is you clean yourself up and come. John's baptism is, let's do this together. I see your mess. I'll get in the mess with you. Let's do this together because we're going to come be part of the people. And so these baptisms as well that John was doing, they're not in these clean temple pools. And, and don't think for a second that the Jordan is some idyllic, crystal clear creek. The, the Jordan was like E.B. Slough is probably cleaner than, than the Jordan. Okay? Maybe like the Duwamish, the little waterway in downtown Seattle that's like all messy. It was just disgusting. It was, it was so gross. The Jordan was remarkably dirty that, that um, back in, in 2 Kings 5, there's this Syrian commander, Naaman, who had leprosy, and he was so um, desperate to be clean that he'd even go follow a, a Jewish prophet. And that, that prophet, Elijah, says, you need to go, or Elisha, actually, sorry, you need to go wash yourself in the Jordan. And Naaman was like, whoa. Ain't nobody getting clean in the Jordan. Ain't nobody getting healed in the Jordan. This is, it's dirty. But he humbled himself. He went and he washed himself and he came out clean. See, this, this baptism wasn't about outward cleanliness of people making themselves perfect so they could go up and be with God. This baptism was about contrite hearts of confessed sinners actively humbling themselves relying on others to enter the muddy waters of the Jordan through baptism to prepare for the glorious king who was going to come down and be there with us. So this was, this was new. This was different. This was so contrary to the religious teachings of the day that it greatly concerned the Jewish religious leaders. And so we see in this section as well, uh, in verse 7, that, that these opponents come out. There's these two groups of people that come out to oppose John's revival. They don't like his little church plant out there. And so um, these groups as well figure prominently throughout the gospel. And so we see there's the Pharisees, right? And, and if you know your Bible, you know a little bit about the Pharisees. But they, they're not incredibly political, but they're highly religious. They, they, they called themselves the separated ones because they were so holy. They saw themselves as a cut above everyone else. They looked at the world around them, saw that God's people in Israel were starting to worship like the Romans were and like the Greeks were, and so they were going to hold on to the pure and right and true worship of the God of the Bible, even if it meant they had to add a thousand extra rules to make sure nobody came close to doing anything that might look unclean or unholy. So they were all about purity. And while this may appear like it was a high standard, it actually had the effect of lowering God's standard for holiness. Because now all of a sudden, holiness, perfection before God, was something that could be achieved on their own. Just work hard. Just do it right. Don't screw up. Don't do anything that might be a little untoward. So these guys were a lot of fun. There's also the Sadducees, and they were different. They were the elites the religious elites, the political elites, the wealthy, these folks, they were incredibly political. They were very wealthy. They were mostly priestly families living in Jerusalem. And so they were religiously conservative, uh, to be sure, but they were much more interested in being politically pragmatic. So they'd rather have stability with a good government 
than, than shake things up and work against the government. So they active, actively supported the Roman government. They, they didn't speak out against it, um, and, and um, they really weren't too interested in, in the high piety of the Pharisees. They kind of had their own way of doing things. And so the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you'll see their names together a lot in the Gospels, but they are political opponents. They are social opponents. They are religious opponents. Nothing in their lives together lines up that says, yes, these are my brothers, except they're allied against what John's doing. And they'll come together to be allied against what Jesus is doing in his ministry. So even folks that can't agree on anything else can come out and oppose what God's doing through his messenger, what God's doing through his son. Look at news. You can look out the news. Look out the world, and you're like, "How are these two groups that don't agree on anything, but they can agree that they don't like Christianity, they don't like the gospel, they don't like Jesus?" Because that's the light of the world. That's what you. That's what unites more than anything is Jesus, whether you're for Him or whether you're against Him. And so, these groups were opponents, and they united against John, they united against Jesus. And it is possible, based on the text, that some were actually maybe coming out to be baptized. Some of them maybe wanted to participate in this activity, but overwhelmingly it's most likely that they all came out to examine what was happening and condemn it, put a stop to it. And so John, uh, he doesn't really view these guys as particularly humble. He, um, he's, they're not ready to receive the king, and so at best he assumes maybe, maybe they do think the king's coming, maybe they do think baptism can help them, but, but all they want to do is avoid God's wrath. There's no joy in what they're doing. They just, hey, just keep me from hell. I don't care what else you want to do to me. And, and so he calls them vipers. I looked at a few different translations. It's never anything good, right? This viper thing, you can't turn that into a compliment. It means like you're, you're really sneaky. You are lethal. You are scheming. And that's who he calls these guys. And, and so they, these guys are outraged. We're the elites. We're the 1%. We're the ones who decide who's good. We're the ones who decides who's in and out. How dare you come and condemn us and tell us we're not prepared for the king. We are the king. If the king comes down, he'll see how holy we are. That's their, that's their orientation. See, they thought that they could justify themselves. They said, yep. We got Abraham as our father. We're part of God's chosen people. We're part of a religious order. We're wealthy. We are influential. We are good. When God sees us, he's going to be well pleased because of what we've done, who we are, who we've come from. John says, don't presume. Don't think that anything, your lineage, your political party, your association with the church, standing before a holy and just God, and he saves who he wants. What do you use? What do you use to decide you're worthy or not? What do you, what, what's the attorney in your head telling you when the king's about to come, oh, this is why I'm justified. I'm a good dad. I ran an eight-minute mile. Whatever. I'm thinking of the dumb thing for me. Like, I have a good day if my mile's at eight minutes. If it's higher than that, it's a bad day. No. 
I have a good day if I was good to my kids, a bad day if I'm not. A good day if there's lots of people here in the church, a bad day if there's not. What is it for you? Is it your bank account? Is it how well you're training your kids? Is it your hobbies? Is it whether your team won or lost? Is it how good you have relationships with other people? What is it that you use as an appeal for your worthiness? Because John says, it's not going to be good enough. Don't presume that anything about you is worthy enough for the king to come in and say, yep, you're approved. See, John recognizes that there's a problem. And the way he responds to the problem of people not being prepared for the king is he preaches a sermon. See, John, he's got this crowd gathered, and he preaches God's word. Because John knows that it's God that saves. And that God saves through his word. And that God has, has planned to save through preaching. It's how God has chosen to work. So you can read in, in, in Romans 10, 14, it says, How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? See, John's sermon is so clear. It's, it's unambiguous. It is black and white. It is make a decision. It's, there's right and there's wrong. It is, it is so clear. He says, you've got to respond. And his, his sermons have a simple outline. We'll go through his outline. But they have an even simpler title. Like every sermon series John preached was titled Repent. Like, that's it. 42-week series, Repent. Like, he's just going with that. There's nothing new here. There's no like philosophy that he's trying to come up with. There's, there's, he's not coming with his own words. He's saying, God's given me a message. The message is repent. And so his sermons are so simple. So we'll just, we'll preach, we'll just preach through John's sermon right now. We'll just do the, the who, what, the why, and the how of, uh, uh, of uh, John's sermon. So, so he says, hey, okay, who, who's this sermon for? All right, let's just keep this very simple. You're taking notes. You can take notes. They're up online too, but... Who's this sermon for? John says it's for you. It's for me. It's for everyone. See, John is a universalist. Right? We even have a universalist church here in town. No, John is a universalist. We here at Damascus Road, universalists. Because we believe, as John believed, as Scripture teaches, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone. It doesn't matter your orientation, your political party, or um, your sexuality, or your bank account or anything like that, all, 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 all have sinned and fallen short. Universalists here. Everyone is imperfect. Everyone is equally unprepared for the king's arrival. And so, because that king is holy, he's perfect, he is just. And so John preaches to eager commoners who want to hear this word. He preaches to sinful tax collectors. He preaches to oppressive soldiers. And he preaches to the religious elite and his opponents. And, and he even preaches, we'll see later, to a wicked, murderous king named Herod Antipas. He preaches to him and to his adulterous uh, sister-in-law. And he doesn't change the message at all. He says, you need to repent. John is less concerned with who he's preaching to than who he's preaching for. He 
He's preaching to everyone, but he's preaching for the king. And so he never changes his message. He never waters down its intensity, regardless of the audience he has. All right, so who's it for? It's for everyone. What are they supposed to do? If it's not clear yet, repent. Right, repent. See, this is a word we don't use a lot. John preaches, uh, he preaches, he baptizes. He's not coming in, like I said, with new material. He's not trying to start a new cult. He doesn't want people to give him consideration and maybe listen to some of his ideas or, and accept them or reject them. No, he just tells everyone, repent. You don't know what that word means? It literally means to turn. You turn from sin, from pursuing sin, to pursuing God. I was talking to a young guy. I said, hey, man, what, what, what does repent mean? Oh, it means stop sinning. No, it's not good enough to just stop. It's like, no, everything about you, this needs to be a, a, a change in direction from sin to God to, to keep. It's not about stopping sin. It's not about, about keep sinning but, but love God too. Can I add some Jesus sauce on, on top of your sin, right? This is a radical conversion. And it's a change in direction and orientation about every aspect of your life because everything about you, everything about me, apart from Christ, is moving away from an opposition to God. And yet he says, no, turn towards God. Walk in willful obedience to him. See, John's not getting this on his own. This is a fundamental principle of everything in the Bible and John's not even like the intense guy, and Jesus comes in later to soften it up. In a few weeks, we'll look at Jesus' first sermon. What was Jesus' first sermon? Matthew four seventeen. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sounds familiar. Preaching the same thing. Jesus sends out disciples, tells them to tell people to repent. Peter stands up at Pentecost after Jesus has gone uh, back up to heaven on the throne, and Peter tells everyone, repent. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Gentiles who don't know the Bible, tells them, repent. It is the fundamental principle of Christianity. And faithful preachers, I say faithful preachers for 2,000 years have been preaching repent. It's a central part of, of what the gospel is. And so it was and it is distinctive to the gospel. What I mean by that is that the gospel doesn't um, include, excuse me, a gospel that doesn't include repentance is not good news. Because that's saying there's a God who loves you so much, he accepts you in your sin, yes and amen. That's true. But he doesn't love you enough to change you at all, or to ask you to change, or to make anything about your life better, or make anything about your life in line with what he desires for you. No, just stay in your mess. That is not a loving God. That is a God who's condemning people a prison of ongoing sin with no ability to come out and move beyond their sin nature. It's not good news. See, J.I. Packer, uh, an intelligent theologian and pastor, says, repentance is more than just sorrow for the past. Repentance is a change of mind and heart and a new life of denying self, serving the Savior as king in yourself's place means you got a new king. Jesus is in charge of your life. You are no longer. And so repentance is not simply sorrow 
It's not grief. It's not distress. It's not self-punishment. It's not depression or, or, or even merely remorse. See, even, even Judas, right? we all know Judas. Even Judas had sorrow for his sin. He did not repent. See, sorrow for sin is not the same thing as repentance from sin. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of worldview. Your whole life is lived differently. Your motives are different. You don't want to live for yourself or your short-term happiness. You want to live for God and your eternal joy in being the person he desires you to be. See, it's starting a new life. It's not, repentance is not this intellectual assent that, okay, we know no one's perfect. You're right. We know no one's perfect. It's not just that God accepts so there's a radical conversion. And it was so radical that it required them to be baptized because their life needed to die. The dirtiness of their life needed to uh, be washed off. And so you can look at, at Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians. You want to know about repentance? Paul in 2 Corinthians 7 says, talking to the Corinthians, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. No regrets when you repent. You know the new direction's better. You know you have sin. You know that there's broken things about you. This time of year more than any other, right? Going into New Year's, we look at our lives, and each one of us can find at least one thing we don't like about it. So what do we do? We make resolutions. This is the year I'm going to read the Bible all the way through. This is the year I'm going to get my finances in order. This is the year I'm going to lose 30 pounds. This is the year I'm going to, whatever it is. Right, it's January 5th. How many of you are already behind on your reading plan? Right? No, we get, we get this. Our wills are so weak. We resolve to be better. No, we don't need resolutions. We need repentance. See, worldly regret leads to resolutions that are broken. And when our resolutions are broken, more regret. at our lives, realizing there's something wrong and broken about it, who we are, what we do. See, that leads to repentance. That leads to obedience. Tim Keller says that repentance without rejoicing will always lead to This is a hopeful message. The desire, the ability, the, the, the complete reorientation of your life from your sin, from your brokenness, to a perfect and holy and just God that's changed you like water being fresh from him. He says, yes, I want more of that. See, we need to turn from our radical infatuation and intoxication with this world. 
with, with our sin, and we need to redirect our hearts and our souls and our affections to the kingdom of heaven that is at hand in Jesus Christ. See, John's clear. The Bible's clear. No one can be included in the kingdom who's not repented in that way. Faith and repentance are the fruits of regeneration, of being born again, of being a new creation in Christ. See, there's no concept of a saving, salvific, get-to-go-to-heaven faith in Christ without repenting of sin. It's, 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 it's not in here. It's not biblical. So you can't embrace Jesus as your Savior while at the same time spurn Him as Lord of your life. Jesus is our high priest that draws us to God even when we're not worthy. But He is also our King who rules over every aspect of our life. Faith that trusts is faith that submits. And it's faith that acts. See, we can get so excited about grace and, and I want to avoid legalism so much that we think that our outward actions have no effect. Changing our actions is not about conforming ourselves on the outside so that others will approve us. It's about an overflow of what has already changed in our hearts. We want to be new. We want to be different. Actions bear fruit, it says. Fruit reproduces. Fruit is life-giving. Fruit is ongoing. And so it, even to the point that John says, you're to keep in repentance. So apparently, repentance isn't just something you do when you become a Christian. Repentance is something that defines your life as a Christian. It's, it's ongoing. It's not a one-time thing. It is daily. It is hourly. It is moment by moment understanding that how you're acting, how you're feeling, how you're thinking is in opposed to God's will and turning and going the other direction. You will not stop repenting until the day you meet Jesus face to face if you're a Christian. You will not stop repenting until that glorious day when you're made new in the next life. Repentance goes on and on. I heard one guy come in once to our church and say, we would get, talked about repentance. He's like, oh yeah, you know, I repented of sin 30 years ago. Like, whoa, 30 years of not repenting after that. It's a lot of sin, right? My heart broke for him because for three decades, I thought he didn't have to turn to me. That turning's daily. It leads um, to joy. Um, this John preaches this sermon as well in Luke chapter 3, and it's even more detailed there. And, and in Luke 3, everybody says, okay, John, we get it. You said repent. What does that look like? So in Luke 3, 10 through 14, it says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? You've heard about repenting. How? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. 
So repentance apparently looks differently for everyone. We all have different two-by-fours in our eyes that remind us who we are in a year or two. Some of us, by God's grace, have had some of those big two-by-fours removed, and, and now there's, there's still specks in there of different things we need to clean out and wash out and turn away from. But every one of us has a different flavor of sin that needs to be repented of. By God's grace, Ten years ago, he removed a major two-by-four from my head. I could have life again. And yet, ten years later, there's still things that I need to repent of. I was spending time with um, some godly brothers, and um, they were they were talking, and, and they said, uh, you know, Chris, we, uh, we noticed when you talk to us that you're always looking around at somebody else or something else. It doesn't feel like you're actually listening. I said, oh, you were talking to my wife? Um, and uh, they're like, no. They're like, like no, but um, one guy, was, it was hilarious. He goes, yeah, Chris, the first time I met you, um, we got coffee together, and you had a banana, and for 45 minutes you were talking, and you never finished the banana. And I was like, hey, man, finish the banana so I can talk. It's like, oh, well, first of all, I know these guys care about me. And it'd be easy for me to just say, okay, now, you know, that's that's – it's kind of who I am. In fact, one guy even asked, he goes, is that just your personality? Is that who you are? Is that the way you wired? Or is that something you think that can change? And I answered, yes, to both. By, God, by my sin nature, I am a horrible listener. A lot of you know that, right? You've seen me on a Sunday morning looking out the next sign or whatever. It doesn't mean I no. Actually, I'm a bad listener because I think what I have to say or what my thoughts are more important than yours. It's pride. So I'm waiting to think about what I should say next and not fully listening to what you're saying. It's sin. Yeah, it's part of who I am. No, I don't like it. Can I repent? Yeah. God's going to change aspects of of my sexuality and of my finances and how I live every aspect of my life, he better be able to change the way I listen. So yeah, I need to repent of that. And you know what? Like I said, that repentance is ongoing. Like I came home and told Tara about the conversation and she was like, praise the Lord. <laughs> but I, I didn't just like listen to her once. You know, let me listen to what you have to say today. Good, I never have to do that again. And then you kind of move on, right? I do that all the time. We're a gospel community. You might actually have to help me. Hey, Chris, eyes, here, talk to me, right? That's okay. But we all need to repent, and it's a practical thing. So what is it for you? What's that one thing or those two or three things that people say, no, that has to change? Why? Why would we change anything? Why would we need to repent? Why would we need to turn? No, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is coming. John says, and with him comes judgment. He'll judge our big sins, and he'll judge our little sins. And John asks, he asks the religious folks, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That word wrath, rather the word judgment, is the same Greek word where we get the word crisis. There is a crisis coming. 
no one can think they can get away with sin and somehow hope to have more good uh, or that they can have their good outweigh their bad. See, God's holiness is always opposed to everything and everyone evil. John uses language that is so startling to our society and to our culture. He says that there is burning fire that will be unquenchable and never ending. His church is out in the middle of nowhere, and his message is repent or burn. And yet people come. And they see it. They grow. It's the biggest clue that we have that God takes sin seriously, takes his holiness and his glory as paramount. The biggest clue we have is we look at the cross. And we see that Jesus endured on the cross for our sins. And so there is no hope to be spared from that fire without Christ. Either you place your faith in the one who is nailed on a tree, or your tree of life, it says, will be cut down and it will be burned. See, Jesus came first not to bring judgment, but to bear it on the cross. And he returns. He will return. He'll be in glory. And that day there will be judgment. So when does John tell people to repent? Now. Today. Here. You repent now. There is an urgency. Because as we said, John knows there's a crisis. You may not think there's a crisis. People John was preaching to may not think there was a crisis, but there is. Because that judgment day is coming, and you need to repent now. Not take these ideas, walk away, meditate on them for a while, unpack them, get distracted with the playoffs, whatever else. No, you repent now, today. You put your faith in Christ today. You believe in him for salvation today. You turn from your sin today because the king, it says, is coming. There's no hope otherwise. Your tree will be cut down. Not just cut off at the stump to grow again. No, it says the axe is at the root. You will be cut off from the source of all life. That is who God is. He brings life. Repentance brings life. Faith in Christ brings life. He says, if you don't, you will be cut off. Because your tree is diseased with sin. Diseased trees don't get to be tables or mantle places in God's castle, right? No, they have to be burned to be purified kept away from everything that is holy and good and just. This isn't just, wish we had more time, but there isn't just John giving this hellfire message. Jesus in John 15 says the same thing. You're either part of me as a branch or you'll be cut off and you will burn. That is the message of Jesus Christ of Nazareth in history is repent, the kingdom's coming or you burn. Repent. Judgment is coming. God is patient, yes. We're not burning today, praise the Lord. But Romans 2 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God will act to oppose your sin. God will cut you off. He will not let you sin any further. And either he will do it through Christ saving you through his work on the cross, or you'll have to burn. You can either identify with Jesus and his punishment, or you will receive your own. The wages of sin is death. There is hell. There is fire. There is also living water. And so we all need to repent. The 
question is, how? Repentance is hard. We, th- we, we can only do this by the grace of God. We can only do this by the grace of God in Jesus Christ because we know nothing of repentance. We only know resolutions. And those break. Those fail. We need someone stronger. We need someone greater, someone mightier, someone with greater resolve. We need something from outside of ourselves. And so here's the problem. It can't be John. John can't be the one that saves them. John is mighty, yes. John is the greatest man who ever lived. And yet, John can't even hold King Jesus' sandals. He's just a messenger. He's not the king. He's a messenger for the king. But John's a good preacher. He's a good preacher because he points people to their need for God. And then, when they understand they need God, he points them to Jesus. Jesus' mercy from judgment. Jesus' grace for a new life. See, John could demand they repent, but diseased trees with hearts of stone are powerless to repent without a divine miracle. We need Jesus because we need someone greater. We need to be joined with Christ who saves us from wrath and empowers us with a new life in the Holy Spirit. My favorite section of scriptures in in, uh, the Bible is Ezekiel 36. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We need the promise of a new life in heaven, but we need empowerment from the Holy Spirit to walk in that new life. God gives us that. In the here and now, we get to be made new by the Holy Spirit. Alone, our hearts are rocks. Nothing more lifeless and harsh than a rock. And yet God takes rocks who are spiritually dead and breathes in new life. That's how God makes his children. He makes rocks repent. starts that gift in repentance. I'll close today with Peter's words in Acts 11. It says, John baptized with water, but you were baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift as them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, us. He granted repentance that leads to life. God gives us the gift of life. He gives us the gift of repentance. So I ask you, I implore you, repent. The kingdom is at hand. The king is coming. He comes with judgment. Flee wrath. Confess sin. Pray to Jesus today for mercy. Ask God to grant you that gift of repentance and a new heart and a new life powered by the Holy Spirit. And then rejoice 
understand that he is gracious. He will answer that prayer and give you the gift of turning dead stones into life and making them children.